Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. When you think about Brainerd, you likely think about that business area that lies between Highway 153 and Missionary Ridge. You might have some other thoughts that come to mind. You might think, uh, that's the place to avoid at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe you're more of an optimist and you think, you know, hey, that's where the Krispy Kreme's located. <laughs> there we go. If you've been around Chattanooga for more than a few years, then you probably remember going over to Woolworths at Eastgate uh, before Hamilton Place was put in, uh, eclipsed everything. Next time you're in Brainerd, however, let me encourage you to take a brief detour. Go around the old Eastgate Mall, and if you'll look on the kind of the east side there, tucked in between office buildings and on the back side of the Brainerd Village Shopping Center, you'll find a cemetery that's right there hidden in all of the business of that area. What you may not know is long before Brainerd was an overly congested road, uh, a bypass to the interstate, you might, you might say now, long before Krispy Kreme had ever been invented, that part of town was a busy mission to the Cherokee Indians. Brainerd Mission was established in 1817 by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, a, a reform mission group uh, made up of Presbyterians, Moravians, and others. The aim of the mission was to provide a basic education to the Cherokee children while also teaching them about the Christian faith. Specifically, they learned to read and write the English language. They learned to read the English Bible. One of the students who came through the mission was named David Brown. He only lived 23 years, but David was instrumental in translating the New Testament into the Cherokee language. This guy who made the New Testament available became a Christian at an Indian mission on the side of Chickamauga Creek, a little mission named Brainerd. Well, what was the inspiration behind the Brainerd mission? We actually have to take a little road trip up to Connecticut to find out the rest of the story. Turns out there was another guy named David who didn't live much longer than David Brown. David, in Connecticut, was called to preach. But he kept running into roadblocks in trying to achieve this calling. You see, in Connecticut at the time, in order to be ordained as a clergyman, there was a law in the books that required that all clergy must have graduated from Harvard, Yale, or some European universities. Well, David enrolled at Yale University, but he was eventually expelled. It's always good when your preacher gets expelled from seminary, right? See, he ran afoul of a controversial rule that was put in place by university trustees. During that time, the First Great Awakening was taking place, and young people were being saved. Tremendous revival was breaking out. And, well, the, the professors at Yale didn't always share in that revival spirit. So it was frequently a, 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 a joke among students to make fun of the professors, to question their, their uh, true religious zeal, to... Uh, call them the worst thing possible, hypocrites. And so Yale put in a policy that said you weren't allowed to say those sort of things about the staff, the professors, the administration, tutors, anything like that. 
Well, David had some things to say about one of his tutors. Uh, specifically, the quote is, is that a chair has more grace than this particular individual. Well, that got him expelled from Yale. So disqualified from serving as a pastor in a local parish, David then turned his attention to the Indians. In spite of loneliness, depression, in spite of what is believed to be tuberculosis, David developed a remarkably successful ministry to the Indians before succumbing to the effects of tuberculosis. David's biography is a Christian classic and should be on everybody's reading list who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is this Connecticut David that inspired so many others to take the gospel to the Indians, including the Cherokee man who translated the New Testament for the Cherokee nation? Well, that was none other than David Brainerd, for whom the Brainerd mission was named. And so the next time you're driving down Brainerd Road, somewhat irritated that you're stuck at a red light or stuck behind in traffic, you can pause and think about the man who literally gave his life that others might hear the gospel on our own frontier. Over the last three weeks, we've been talking about the anticipation of Advent. We've talked about hope and peace and joy. Well, there's one other theme that we associate with this season, and that is the theme of love. Well, of course, love is a big topic. It's so big that the Bible actually has four different words to describe love. That's why when we speak of love, we use the very same word to describe various levels of affection. We use the same word to describe our affinity for our favorite foods, our affection for our spouses and children, and our adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Krispy Kreme. I love my wife. I love Jesus. But here's the thing. Those loves are not equal. Those loves have different, different qualities and different characteristics. And while we would certainly this morning benefit from a detailed consideration of those various dimensions of that simple four-letter word, I want us to think this morning instead about the kind of love that would motivate a man like David Brainerd to give his life for the cause of Christ. I want to talk about the kind of love that continues to motivate men and women to give their lives that others might hear the very same good news that was proclaimed by the angels in the Bethlehem sky. Behold, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This morning our attention will be in the letter to the Romans in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, a passage for which we are likely very familiar. And I would ask, if you're able, would you please stand as we read God's Word from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Father, we thank you for the precious word of God. We thank you for the promise of scriptures. We thank you, Father, for dying for us before we were worth dying for. God, we pray that our time in your word today might be beneficial, might indeed challenge us, indeed may even convict many to follow you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You may likely recognize that this is one of the stepping stones found in what is frequently called the Romans Road. The Romans Road is a means of evangelism, of sharing the gospel with someone using some, some steps along the pathway found in the book of Romans. Of course, Romans being perhaps the most theologically profound of the letters in the New Testament, it certainly has much that can help us understand the things of God and God's desire for a right relationship with us. The first step, of course, on the Romans road is Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It declares our spiritual condition in no uncertain terms. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second step in the Romans road is Romans 6.23. And it tells us what the wages of our sin is. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so though we all have sinned, there's also consequences to be paid for our sin. But God loves us so much that he's paid the wages through Jesus. Romans 5.8 is typically the third stop on the road, reminding us that what Christ did on our behalf. He shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The fourth stop on the road is the response from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says simply, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It really is that simple. It's not complicated. It really is a simple matter of faith and confession. And the final stop on the road is Romans 5, 1, the assurance of salvation, saying, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to find out how to lead somebody to the Lord, just write those scriptures down, memorize them, and you can lead anybody to the Lord with that simple passage, those simple steps along the Romans road. But we see this morning in our passage that, that I want to look at four Four really key principles that show us exactly how much God loves us and what the, how that should motivate us to go to great lengths to show love to our neighbors. Back in Romans chapter 5, we're reminded very first, right off the bat, we are reminded of something that we all need to understand there in verse 6. We are weak. We are, we are powerless. I'd like for us to say that together. We are powerless. We are powerless. Now, different translations handle this in different ways. The ESV, which I use, says weak. If you read the King James, it probably says without strength. The, the CSB, which is the, the Southern Baptist translation, actually uses the word helpless, which if you're looking at a CSB, I underline that word helpless because that's a good word. That, that translation captures the meaning of this word perhaps better than any other. Paul's original word is, a, is an interesting construction. It is a negation of the word for strong. 
Literally, the word means unstrong. Now, we don't speak like that. There, no, no one looks at somebody who's weak and says, you sure are unstrong. But that's what this is saying, that we are unstrong, which means there is not an ounce of ability in our lives to get ourselves right with God on our own. That's what that means. We are unstrong. We are not strong. We are unstrong. We are powerless. Now, you've experienced moments like this in real life. You've needed to do something, and you physically couldn't do it. You didn't have the power to make it happen. It, it wasn't too long ago that I was replacing a part in, in Heather's car that, that connects the steering column to the front wheel. It's not complicated. It's a long steel bar. It should be easily taken off and, and replaced. But one end of that steel beam was, was, was seized in place. And I got one end loose, and I was trying to get the other end loose, and, and I did not have the strength to get that thing undone. I hit it with a hammer. I used all sorts of different leverages. I went back to physical science in middle school trying to think of how to get the best leverage on this thing to get this thing loose. And I came to the conclusion... I don't have the strength. And then, then I came to the conclusion, I got a problem on my hands because I got a car that I can't drive because this is not attached. I didn't have the strength to do it. I needed something to save me from my dilemma. And in that moment, my Savior was, was something called YouTube. YouTube showed me what I needed to do. And guess what? It wasn't my strength. You know what I had to do? I had, to, I had to do something totally different. I had to put heat on the end that was tight, and that heat caused the metal to expand, and it allowed the thing to pop right off. YouTube saved me in my, in my particular dilemma at that moment. I did not have the ability. I did not have the strength. When it came to that automotive malfunction, I was unstrong. But thankfully, there was one who gave me insight. From a spiritual standpoint, this is what Paul is saying about each and every single one of us. There is not one of us in the room today who has the ability to get this right. We don't have the leverage. We don't have the strength. We don't have the means to correct our dilemma. Keep in mind, though, we have said we are powerless, but I think it's important that we cross out we and we write our name in that blank. Because it's easy to talk about these things in the corporate. It's easy to talk about this like we're all sinners. You know, I'm in, a, I'm in a big old family full of sinners. It's easy to talk about it that way, but men and women, listen to me. We need to personalize this. Brian is powerless. I am powerless. Write your own name in the blank. I am powerless. I can't do it on my own. I need someone who is strong enough to rescue me because I am not strong enough. Listen, this should affect how we see our world. I know we have a tendency to judge immoral behaviors and immoral actions in our culture. And I would never suggest for a moment that we turn blind eyes towards sin. But it should break our hearts to see so many walking in darkness and sin. But we need to understand something. 
about our lost, lost friends, our lost neighbors, our lost co-workers and classmates. We need to understand, understand something very profound about them. They, too, are powerless. They lack the strength to get it right in the same way that we lacked the strength to get it right. If you are a Christian today, you did not do it on your own. You could not do it on your own because you are helpless. You are unstrong. Paul continues, though. Look at the second part of verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He uses another term there. And so while we are powerless, we are also not worthy. Let's say that together. We aren't worthy. Paul describes us as godless. And all the major English translations handle the word the same way. Universally, we are declared to be the ungodly. And Paul wrote this word the exact same way that he wrote the other word, a negation of a positive term. And so literally he means we are undevout or we are ungod-fearing. And so it is the opposite of what we should be. So we aren't we aren't morally fit. So so whatever you see as a devout person when it comes to the things of God apart from Christ, we're the exact opposite. And so the first point spoke to our inability to get it right apart from the Lord. The second point speaks to the depth of our moral corruption. We are not just unable to fix our alienation from God. We are not morally fit on our own to be reconciled to God. And just like we corporately aren't worthy, we also need to embrace the idea that I am not worthy. Put your name in the blank. Brian is not worthy. All this points to a truly hopeless condition. And our flesh begs us to look at our neighbor with frustration and disgust. But the Spirit calls us to look at our neighbor with despair. Because their condition was our condition. And unchanged, that condition is horrifically bleak. There is coming a day when we will stand before the Lord and Romans 5, 6 is all that's needed to condemn each and every single one of us. We are powerless and we are godless. We cannot save ourselves and we are not worthy to be saved. This is the universal human condition because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. It doesn't matter how much money a person has or doesn't have. It doesn't matter where they fall on the socioeconomic ladder. It doesn't matter how, if they identify as something other than what they are. It doesn't matter if they're married or single or divorced or any other arrangement that our modern culture can contrive. Romans 5, 6 reminds us that the gospel is really bad news before it's really good news. The really bad news is that humans are in really, really, really bad shape. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I recognize that this doesn't play well in today's culture. 
We're supposed to think that ah, everybody's generally okay until they prove that they're not. And when they prove that they're not, then we can deem them to not be okay. But the gospel declares that none of us are okay. Romans 3.10 says that there are none righteous, not even one apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. If we stopped here, it's all true. But it's a bad day. It's a bad day. It's all true. We're powerless. We're not worthy. It's true. And we could stop there. But God didn't stop there, did he? God didn't stop there. And that's why the gospel's good news. Look at verse 8. But God, listen, when you see that in the pages of Scripture, that is a hallelujah moment. That is a moment to celebrate and rejoice and, and delight because something awesome's about to happen. Because up to this point, this is bad. But God, but God, what's it say? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in this mess, while we were still hopeless and powerless and clueless, Christ died for us. God took the first step. God took the first step. Because humans are powerless to save themselves and unfit to be saved, in order for us to have any hope whatsoever, then God had to initiate our deliverance. God had to take the first step. Now, we get a hint of it back in verse 6. He says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, but we're left asking the question, why? Why would he do such a thing? And here's our word. God shows his love. God shows us his love. In a sense, the incarnation... It's kind of like a rescue mission. You know, when a, when a firefighter runs into a burning building, he does so without regard to the character or the abilities of the person inside. They don't have a conference outside in the yard that says, says oh, so-and-so's trapped inside. Well, what do you know about so-and-so? Does he pay his bills on time? Uh, does, he, does he treat his family right? Uh, does, is he a hard worker? Does he have a good job? I'm not sure we should go in and get him because he doesn't check all those boxes. Uh, I'm not, he's not the best husband. Let's not go in and get him. He's not the best dad. He loses his temper. Let's, let's not run in and get him. That doesn't happen when, the, when there's a person in a burning building and the fire department shows up. When that happens, what does a firefighter do? Charges the building. Why? Because there's somebody inside who needs to be rescued. They don't ask about the character of the person in there. There's a victim in the home, and there's a choice that has to be made to go in and get him or not. And when that firefighter gets to the victim, when the firefighter lands right there and he's, he's ready to take that victim out of the burning building, he rescues that victim on the basis of the firefighter's character, not on the character of the victim. And when the firefighter gets there, the, the victim in the home has an immediate choice to make, right? There is someone here to rescue me from certain doom. I can either 
go with him and be saved or stay in the building and be condemned? Do they take the hand of the rescuer? Or do they ignore the hand that can save them and they perish in the flames? The firefighter is there for their good, but they still have to cooperate with the one who's there to save them. Christ has taken the first step towards us. He has come to our rescue, but we are powerless and godless people, and so we still have to receive the rescue. We still have to choose to receive the gift that's been extended to us. We have to recognize that we don't have the means to fix our problem. We have to recognize that the only way we can have eternal life is by taking the nail-scarred hand of the Savior who came to rescue us by laying down his own life. Don't miss this last point. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God took the first step, but he also did everything necessary. Don't miss this. God initiated our rescue. We have to receive the offer that he is making us. But verse 9 declares something that's very important. We have been justified by his blood. This is one of these words that we toss around in the church a lot that we should never, ever get tired of seeing. When you see the word justified in the Bible, when you're talking about being justified in your Sunday school class, don't ever get tired of talking about being justified. Because when we receive Jesus' offer of rescue, we need to understand that he doesn't just put in a good word for us. You know, old Brian Carroll, he was powerless and godless to save himself, but he let me rescue him, and, and as long as he doesn't mess up too badly between now and then, you probably should give him a shot at this eternity thing. It's up to you, but I can vouch for him. That's, that's not what happens. The glory of justification is this. I'm powerless to save myself. I'm not worth saving. But now, because of Jesus, I stand justified, not by anything that I've done, not by my merit, not by my resume. I stand justified because of everything Jesus has done on my behalf. Justification is a legal term. It is the precious thing that happens when God looks at us, looks at the case against us, looks at the blood of Jesus, and declares me not guilty. I've never been in a courtroom when a person on trial has been declared not guilty. But I suspect that's a, a joyous moment. And we're supposed to have something in our criminal justice system that prohibits double jeopardy, so that if you've been acquitted on a crime, you don't get to be retried on that same crime because you've been declared what? Not guilty. 
When we are justified in the courts of God, we are declared not guilty. We are acquitted of all our crimes, not because the penalty was taken, but because someone paid our penalty. We are justified because Jesus took the penalty on our behalf. He died the death that we were due. That was our place. He took it for us. And as Romans 9 continues, or Romans, Romans 5, 9 continues, we are saved by Him from the wrath of God because the wrath of God against sin was satisfied not on me, but in Jesus. On the cross. He secured my pardon. He paid my penalty. He guaranteed that I would be justified through His blood. God did everything necessary to secure us for eternity. He did it. And so if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian today, do you understand the magnitude of what's being presented here? This isn't small potatoes, folks. This is eternity shaking. This isn't stuff to, to just kind of gloss over on the weekends when we go to church. This is stuff that we should, you ought to wake up in the morning. Thank God I'm justified. Thank God I'm not guilty. Thank God you saved me. Thank God. You love me. You know what the most unloving thing we can do is? The most unloving thing we can do is keep this all to ourselves. We look around and we see a lost and dying world. Listen to me. Those folks that drive us crazy, they're powerless. Those folks whose lifestyles challenge our virtues, they're not worthy. But neither were we. Not one of us. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. If it helps you, put your name in there. While Brian was still a sinner, Jesus died for me. While Brian was helpless and hopeless, Jesus died for me. So the most unloving thing we can do is keep this to ourselves. If we truly understand this, then we're like firefighters who have the ability to get people out of the burning building, but who are content to stand in the yard and watch the house burn. What in the world to, could explain a 28-year-old 20 year man coughing up blood with tuberculosis, going in the wilderness to give his very last days to a group of people that he didn't know? That's it. That's it.
Because we've tasted the love of God that provided for our rescue. That love that we've tasted now compels us to share it with others. So what else can we do apart from going and telling to anyone who would listen? Would you join me in prayer, please? Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.